the gospel lesson comes to us from the good news according to St. Mark, the 8th chapter. Let's give it our careful attention. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And this is the gospel of our Lord. I'd like to begin our time this morning reflecting a little more deeply on a word or a phrase that we use sometimes that I think has more meaning than we use it when we use it flippantly or easy not because it's so important, just because it's helpful. And that's the word iconic. You use that sometimes like, whoa, that was iconic what they did right there. It's something that's not quite like goat, as the younger folks say, you know, the greatest of all time. Uh, but it's something a little like that. I think goat is a little bit too much like just sports competition. It's something more than legendary. Your, your friend might do something crazy and you go, that's legendary. But we kind of save iconic for something we realize to be frozen in time as unique and special, something to be remembered. It's most often an image, maybe an image that captured a moment or a lifestyle or an accomplishment that we find especially worthwhile. Someone or something particularly beautiful or powerful and strong or amazing, more than human even, extraordinary. What do you think of as iconic? You might think of something like the Statue of Liberty or the Eiffel Tower. Some of you might think of James Dean with the sleeves rolled up in a cigarette, or John Wayne on a horse, or Marilyn Monroe standing in her dress over a street grate. Some of us might think of Michael Jordan, mid-dunk with his tongue hanging out. Michael Jackson doing the moonwalk. Or Andy Warhol, Anna Wintour in her glasses. Or Martin Luther King on the national lawn preaching, I have a dream. The moon landing in those words, one step, one small step for man. Perhaps you picture a fire truck with FDNY on the side and the words 9-11. The, the numbers 9-11. Maybe you picture Mother Teresa over an invalid in a hospital cot. Someone like Nelson Mandela or Navalny or Bobby Wine. 
Maybe you just can't get your mind off of Taylor Swift right now as I'm talking. Pretty much everything about Taylor Swift. And yeah, these are mostly popular culture and most of them American that I used. Maybe for you it's an intellectual, a writer, someone sitting in their cabin thinking deep thoughts and writing amazing things for the world, a conservationist or an activist, a business figure like Steve Jobs with his beautiful little iPhone. Or maybe it's closer to home, it's just a beloved ancestor or grandparent. Icons used to be static paintings or then photographs or statues, some kind of artifact we would meditate on every time we thought about it or looked upon it. In time, they often became moving images, videos, you know, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, whatever, videos that we could replay and replay on a loop, especially if you grew up like me on VHS, just over and over again. Now, they tend to be images and video clips that we scroll through at the speed of a fast-moving thumb. That it's almost hard to think of any of these things as singular icons. In fact, uh, a writer named Muriel Silkoff was writing in the Times last week in an article, Pity the Poor Kids, Teen Subcultures Are Fading. She says this, I thought it was interesting. Subcultures in general, once the poles of style and art and politics and music around which wound so many ribbons of teenage meaning have largely collapsed. What teenagers today are offered instead is a hyperactive landscape of so-called aesthetics. Thousands of them, including everything from the infamous cottage core to these days prep. These are more like cultural atmospheres, performed mainly online with names and looks and hashtags, an easy visual pablum. They come and go and blend and break apart like clouds in the wind, many within weeks of appearing. They have much content but little context. A lot to look at, but a very thin relationship to any real-life anything, like behaviors or gathering places. If two dozen things on a Pinterest page feel as if they go together, chances are someone, even just as a Larker experiment, is calling it an aesthetic. And she says this, Yet when I look at the younger people in my life, the teenagers crate-digging through these details, arguing about dark academia versus light academia, or the differences between goblin core and crow core, it doesn't seem to me that they want to negate meaning. It seems as though they are looking hard for identity, for validation, for the dignification of their taste. It's just that they are being presented with these thin cultural planes that barely exist outside their devices. Okay. So icon as a group of images, as an aesthetic, as a lifestyle that we aspire to, still it's the same idea, these images, these moments, this way of life. And these operate on levels deeper and more holistic than the merely intellectual. We quote philosopher Jamie Smith a lot around here that actually these things operate sometimes subconsciously or often unconsciously, if not mostly subconsciously, uh, excuse me. They work on our desires and our affections and those things that make us just find something shiny and beautiful and desirable without even thinking about it or knowing why. They are more than ideas. They contain ideas, of course, but they're primarily stories. Think about all those people I mentioned. They are primarily embedded 
in stories about what makes for the good life, an epic life, an extraordinary life, a life to aspire to. And they are multisensory, desire-inducing. And they work on all of our senses and underneath conscious examination most of the time. They shape our loves. That is, they shape what we think is worthy of emulation. And we follow them. Whatever comes to you in mind when you think about an aesthetic you want to live up to or an icon, they're often pictures of a life that we want to save. And that religious word most explicitly just means holistic flourishing, something far from where we are. They represent a life that we want to save, that we want to flourish. And so what do you find iconic? Who are your heroes, your role models? Who do you aspire to be like? Another way to put it is, in whose image are you building your life? In whose image are you being made? And perhaps that's still too abstract, too still religious and on the nose. And so let me ask you a couple other questions. This is simple. I know it's simple. I know you can do it because this is the first thing most of you want to talk to your pastors about when we sit down, and that is this. What are you trying to achieve in life? What's your ambition? Or your ambitions? Reflect on that for a moment. Try to get one thing in mind. And then look at that thing for a second as you would look at an image. And let me argue that your answer to this, your ambition, what you're trying to achieve, is always also an answer to a deeper question we don't always ask explicitly, that we let operate subconsciously as it determines where we're headed. And that is this question. Who are you? I think this is a question that, and I'm not really one to slam dunk on culture all the time, but this is one that our culture in the modern late West here doesn't often ask. Plenty of images and lures to do things, to want things. But rarely the question, well, who are we actually and what are we made for? So who are you? Who are you trying to become? And this is the question not just of ambition, but of identity. Who are you? Again, I spend a lot of time with people trying to ask the first question, and I often try to get them to ask the second question because they're related. If you admire loyal people or successful people or strong people, then you think that's what it means to be good, and you will try to identify with strength, loyalty, success. Some of you are a little older than I am, and you don't sweat these questions as much as you used to, but still you've answered them, and you must reflect. And don't we all answer them again every day in certain ways? As long as there are days to live and choices to be made about what to do with our time? See, eventually our either acknowledged and explicit answers to these questions or the tacit answers that we let happen subconsciously as we pursue the next thing, eventually our answers to these questions, who am I? And what do I want to achieve with my life become public? That is, they bear fruit in the world. They become shared. And eventually others feel the fruit of our answer to the question, who am I and what am I trying to do in my life? They feel the fruit of that for better and for worse. 
And we become people that others want to emulate or to avoid. This is that word reputation, of course. The reputation you have with others. And this goes both ways. We depend on others' advice and opinions of us and example to make our own choices. Together, we make these choices about what we find to be beautiful and true and good and worthy. Who it is we think we are deep down and ought to become and what we ought to do. We ask these corporately. We ask them also individually. But again, we ask them sometimes as groups. A church asks these questions. Who are we? What's our mission? Cities ask it through elections and all sorts of other choices about budgeting. Nations ask it. Jesus and his disciples are going through a similar life as we are. They're there. They're looking for icons and images and ways of life and aesthetics, if you will, about what it means to be in the world for them in a time as a people who were religious and had a way of life in the Torah, but they had been oppressed. They couldn't, they couldn't live out their lifestyle fully because the Romans had them under their thumb and their boot. And they were waiting. They were always asking the question, what does this mean about who we are, God? Are we now your forsaken children? Or are we still your chosen ones? We want this. Is this also what you want for us? Fill in the blank. And so Jesus and the disciples, they're walking through the land. And they want to know where they're going. Jesus is about to tell them, this is where we're going. This is our destination. This is what we're going to do. But before he gets there, he wants them to get deeper between these questions, the ambition questions, down to the questions of identity. And so I want you to witness as we walk through the text again, Jesus giving us a master class in what I will call soul work that I encourage you to do. Jesus starts at the surface and then he digs down from there. Just before our text, I didn't read it to you on purpose. Just prior, Jesus says this, He went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This is where Caesar's right-hand man would dwell by the side of the lake in this palace. And on the way, he asked his disciples, okay, who are people saying that I am? What do they think about my identity after they've seen what I'm doing? And they told him, well, here's your reputation. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. So Jesus starts out asking about his reputation. Hey, how are others viewing me? What kind of image are they putting me in? What kind of frame? Hey, what's the press say on us? Did the feeding of the 4,000 make page six? What's the pitchfork review anyways? So Jesus plays into this to get the disciples talking, thinking, and revealing their own identity as the time goes on. The deeper questions. Questions like who they are what their motivations and where their motivations are aimed, their ambitions, what they want to accomplish. Sometimes if we can't examine our own icons or how they motivate us, sometimes it's easier just to look at what our peers are into. What are your friends and those you hang out with aspiring to? Because this stuff does rub off on one another. Jesus, at any rate, he's getting mostly great reviews. He's certainly got some haters in power, but the people in general love him. It's like he's about to take over the whole game. They probably are thinking of him as the goat, right? The disciples report as much. So he's got a great reputation. It's trending, lots of different directions, but all positively with the people. 
Then he goes on. He asks them, okay, we're learning a little bit about the reputation, the image that people are seeing me in. But then he asks them, his closest followers, okay, we got to the reputation. Let's go a little deeper. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus said, forget the reviews for a second. Forget what other people think. What do you think about who I am? This is really important. Personally, for each one of you, for me, relationally, spiritually, it's important to tune out the noise sometimes of our own answers to these questions. To tune out the noise of what other people say about who God is or might be or isn't about Jesus. To forget the hierarchy, the rankings games, the reputation hustle, because this reputation game, if we base our life on it, is deadly and shifting sands and also easy, the easiest default setting. And to answer the question, who do you think I am? He's making a central question, this one of interpersonal revelation and identity. And he asks us this question today, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? Yeah, I mean, you're here, you're at church, okay? So let's just do it. The God question. The question of all great spirituality and yearning. Who is God? And in light of who God is, who am I? In light of who I am, what am I actually there for? What's the point of my life? What am I supposed to be doing? Is Jesus a guru? A great man of the wisdom tradition. A shockingly holy man, saint, saint or saint, setting a good example to follow. A nice guy. A distant judge, a stern and cold, waiting to hammer you with the law. A totem, a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot. A magical power source to make all your ambitions come true. And Peter gives the only answer that truly counts. He says, on behalf of the disciples, Jesus you are the Christ. You are the Christ. This word from the Old Testament, the Messiah, God's anointed, the one that in Genesis 3 was promised would come and crush the head of the snake and would be the seed that would bear fruit and deliver God's people. And it picked up steam, this image throughout the Old Testament. The great king that will rule over all nations, the one that will heal every injustice, the one with all power, the one whose reign would go longer than any Davidic or Solomonic king ever had. Peter gets the right answer. Jesus says, you are correct. And because you've made this correct view of who I am, I'm naming you the rock, and I will build my church on it. All God's people will come from this insight, this insight into who I am. I am the Christ. Then he does something strange. In the next verse, he says, good job, you got it right. And then it says, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Don't tell anyone this about who I actually am right now. 
It can be hard to get a handle on this Jesus, isn't he? Sometimes. He heals people. He tells them, don't tell anyone. He asks the disciples a question about identity. They get the right answer. And he says, strictly, don't you tell anyone about this. And maybe, as we'll see, it's because they only have sort of the right answer. To say the Christ is so far only partial credit. In fact, it's just enough knowledge. You know, if you have just enough, you've seen someone fish out on a boat all by themselves before and you think, oh, I saw someone do it once in a YouTube video or whatever. I'm going to go out there by myself. And you get out there and there's gale force winds and you don't know what you're doing and you, you know, get the hook stuck in you. Not that I'm speaking from experience. I'm just saying. Uh, ah, you have just enough knowledge to get yourself in trouble. That's what's going on here. They know just enough to make things worse. Stick with me for a moment. See, Jesus knows that what Peter and the disciples mean by you are the Christ is this, they're importing onto this truth, into this image, some other things in the frame. This divinely appointed leader who they expect will come and kick Rome's behind. It will liberate the Jewish people and make them glorious again so that they can turn around and oppress Rome or at least run them off forever, put them back on top of the world pecking order, greater than any kingdom before. And so their confession of Jesus as Messiah in title is correct, but it's incomplete and misdirected because they have a wrong picture of what God's king is meant to do. Because they don't know deeply enough who he really is, even underneath the title. If they had remembered their Bible stories, they would remember that the messianic son of man, Jesus says the son of man, is both the divine ruler of the cosmos and throughout the scriptures, Genesis 3 through the prophets, destined to suffer and perhaps die for the sins of mankind, to be the great sacrificial lamb. And he says, in essence, you know what, guys? You're going to just put even more wrong ideas about me in people's head if you go around and tell them he's the king. So it's best you keep quiet for now. And then he goes on to correct their expectations of who he is, his identity, and where he's going, and what he will be doing, his ambitions. So go back to those questions for a moment. What do you long for? Who do you want to be? Whatever destination you're seeking for yourself, day in, day out, that's what you assume is good, how things ought to be. Disciples had a very specific picture about how things ought to be. And Jesus gets real clear here that often wherever we're trying to go, whomever we're trying to be, it's not the right place. It's not the right person. It's not who we truly are at our most deep places. It's not who we're meant to be. He does plain speech. He spoke to them plainly. No poetry, no parables, no metaphors, nothing. Again, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests, the scribes, and then be killed, and then after three days to rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is what a real Messiah does. This is what real leadership looks like, what true power and success is, and that is to suffer on behalf of others, to die. And then to rise again to bring new life. See, Jesus, to flip the metaphor a little bit, the image we've been working with, is that Jesus, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, made human beings, man and woman, together in his image. 
And in his love and in his ambition, he eventually became one of us. That is, he became like us. He took on our image. He became flesh. He took on our humanity. He walked with us. He suffered rejection and misunderstanding and homelessness and hunger. He walks with us. He suffers with us. He takes on all of our experience. And finally, he's saying, it's got to go all the way. I have to be made perfectly like you. And that is, I have to walk through death so that you don't continue to do it alone. I have to go into that place and make it a safe place for you. I'm going all the way with you to be like you, to be made in your image. Yes, even nailed up with the record of wrongs above me. Paying the penalty for sin, even though I have never sinned. Peter sees this agenda and he vehemently disagrees with it. He sternly rebukes him. No way that you can suffer and serve and die. This doesn't make any sense. What other king leads like this? And think of your own icons and your own leaders, politically and otherwise. Who else leads like this? It's illogical. If he dies, how can he save anyone? No one leads from the grave. It's unprecedented. Every other leader gets to the top, stays there, and then doles out rewards and power positions to his loyalists. It feels unrewarding. Hey, I've suffered to follow you. Where's my reward? Peter articulates these things and rebukes him. And Jesus says, right now, Peter, though I've just called you the rock, you are Satan. You can say Christ, and that could be a foundation, but if by Christ you mean these things, you are now Satan. And boy, is there a warning here for us in these days. Religious people can be some of the most dangerous people to be around when it comes to this. Jesus is the king, but who is he beneath that title? What kind of king is he, and what is he up to? What's his ambition? Is it to make any one nation state in the history of this planet great and powerful, to lord it over all others? Is it to have us do his bidding like the Greek gods did, to demand heroic, blind obedience? Or is it, as he says here, death, mercy, compassion? That's co-suffering with. Healing the deeper wounds and infirmities. To bring repair. To conquer through a cross rather than a sword. To assume not a golden throne, but a naked tree that he was hung hung upon. It's really important to get Jesus right. This is the image he wants you to have of him, the kind of king that he really is. And so he says, in closing this 34 through 37 again, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life, that is, whoever would make a flourishing life through all of the perfect aesthetic choices and career choices and relationship choices, whoever would save his life in that way in his own strength will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that is whoever becomes like me at my depth. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, this good news, will save their life. See, we often will endure suffering for a moment to build our kingdom, but we risk losing our souls. King Jesus does call his people to suffer, but in losing, to gain life. To have the promise that 
On our own, we might lose all that we care about, but even so, if God is on our side and we're following him, we will eventually win and be restored. Jesus is the only worthy leader to build your life upon. The writer David Bentley Hart puts this. It's just one paragraph, but it's really beautiful. Let me read it to you. The gospel of a God found in broken flesh, humility, and measureless charity has defeated all the old lies, rendered the ancient order visibly insufficient and even slightly absurd, and instilled in us a longing for transcendent love so deep that, if once yielded to it, will never grant us rest anywhere but in Christ. By the way, you hear this individually, and he does mean that, but he's talking about the West that we live in. There is a real sadness in this because the consequences of so great a joy rejected become a sorrow, bewilderment, and anxiety for which there is no precedent. To have no God but the God of Christ, after all, means today that we must endure the Lenten privations of what is most certainly a dark age and strive to resist the bland solace, inane charms, brute viciousness, and dazed passivity of post-Christian culture all of which are so tempting precisely because they enjoin us to believe in and or adore ourselves. And so what is your identity found in, friends? Who do you say that Jesus is? He is asking us to take up our cross and to follow him, to die to our false selves, to our shallow identities that we create for ourselves and for one another, to our reputation to die to all the abuses of power and ambition that we have, to free ourselves of the yoke of reputation and others and trying to become the ones on top. Instead, to use our ambition to follow Jesus where he's going. This path of suffering and co-suffering, of redemptive love that will allow us to walk even through a cross. He is meant to be our mirror image. Again, he made us in his image. When we've gone astray and marred that image, he came and took on our image, marred like us, and then was victorious and said, I will rise again to a new life and the way to become like me, now glorious, resurrected, life everlasting, indestructible, no tears, no harm, no pain, both as an individual and as a world, if you want to be made back in this image to mirror me, then you must also take the path I have followed. You don't have to fear it anymore because there is no sting in it. There's no fear of ultimate separation from him because he has won you over as a beloved child of God. And now you're free to follow him in the way of the cross. And so I want you to picture this. This Christ... When he's enthroned, he is most Christ. When he's enthroned on a stripped and gnarled tree, naked, bleeny, tortured, rejected by all, sacrificing and looking out with love and forgiveness. This is Christ. This is his true self-identity, his ambition. He is the icon to whom we were to look upon and adore and reflect and become like and love he wants you to become like him because you are in him and he is in you and it can be no other way if you have his spirit. Christ crucified, arms open wide in love, giving his life that he might save ours. That is to make it flourish and live in shalom again. Giving his life that he might save ours through his love and mercy. This is who God is. 
This is what he does even again today. This is iconic. This is to be our icon, our image we adore, our reflection in the mirror, our aspiration, our hope, our aesthetic, our lifestyle, our accomplishment, our love, our love with all of our heart, soul, strength, mind, and affection. Because this Jesus, who he is, is a king who has loved you to death. Of what other icon can you say the same? Who else will do that for you? Let's worship him again this morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.